Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Equity Assumptions, Modestly but Steadily Lower Returns, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Hannah Anderson, Global Market Strategist from our Global Market Insights team, and with me today are Patrick Showitz, a Global Strategist with our Multi-Asset Solutions Group, and Stephen Macklis-Smith, a Portfolio Manager and Strategist in our International Equities Group. Today's episode is part of our series on J.P. Morgan Asset Management's annual Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions, or LTCMAs. These are our forecasts for 50-plus asset classes, which we produce in 13 different currencies. We've released these long-term capital market assumptions for 22 years and are always, each year, adding new assets and currencies. Within the long-term capital market assumptions, we publish deeply researched commentaries by experts, including our guests today. In today's podcast, Equity Market Assumptions, Modestly but Steadily Lower Returns, Patrick and Stephen will discuss where they see equities going globally over the long run. To set the scene, equity assumptions have again declined compared to last year. Over the long run, developed market equity returns are forecasted to return on average 5.5% a year, which is down from last year's assumption of 6% annually. Emerging market equity returns, in local currency terms, are assumed to return an average of 8.25% each year, which is down from last year's 8.75%. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. All right. To start things off, can you walk us through how you arrive at our long-term capital market assumption equity return assumptions. What building blocks are we looking at? Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, building blocks is actually the right starting point. So throughout the long-term capital market assumptions, we actually try as much as possible to break things down into building blocks to keep it transparent for readers and users and also to make it relatively easy for people to disagree with a building block. They can just swap that out. And finally, actually, to make it easier for ourselves as well to break it down and really take views on different parts. Now, when it comes to the equity numbers, we really, in some sense, follow what people might think of an income statement or profit and loss model, but then also add other aspects that are important to drive shareholder return. We really try to forecast what earnings are going to do in the long run in the first part of the model, which is really the key driver for what shareholders get. To do that, we start with top line, so company sales. How much will company sales grow? That's building block number one, which itself is derived from the GDP forecasts that we have around the world, so nominal GDP. But then we also adjust for company exports because obviously we know companies in the West export to faster growing emerging markets. So clearly they get a bit of a bonus for that. And conversely, um, companies actually, funnily enough, get penalized for exporting to slower growing developed markets. So that's number one. Step number two is then to say, okay, what do we think margins will do? Are company margins currently high? Are they low? Where will they go in the long run? And absolutely, we look at how does it look relative to, say, long-run averages. But then we also look at whether those long-run averages are really what we would expect in the future. So clearly, there are structural changes, and we make adjustments for that. But then you've got top-line growth. You've got change in margins over the long-run horizon. So 
add those two together and you're pretty quickly at earnings. So far, so good. That's fairly easy. We then also try to adjust for the number and checker because so far we've really talked about total aggregate profits or earnings, not per share. And clearly what you get as a shareholder is per share. So share issuance, share buybacks clearly feature into that. There is some reasonably complex math in this to actually adjust this, looking at sustainable return on equity, payout ratios, things like that, to get to the change in share count that we should expect, which gets us to earnings per share, at which point we've probably got the bulk of the return number. We then start looking at valuations, clearly whether equities at any given point or at the point where you buy them, whether they are expensive or cheap, is one of the most important drivers for equity returns. Given that the first part of the process really uses earnings, really it's the PE that we need to look at here. Price to book actually comes into the buyback and share count equation, but here we're looking at PEs. And again, we look at are they high, are they low, how do they look relative to history, have there been any changes that we would expect, so is the long run average appropriate, similar considerations as before, that gives you a return contribution. And then very final step, we add the dividend yield to it. Again, the dividend yield kind of goes together with the buybacks in the earlier process to see can companies really afford to pay out. So we have to look at what's a sustainable payout and reinvestment. So there's, I'd say, about five steps in this, so five building blocks that people can adjust. I think the interesting or nice bit in it is also to realize these things aren't independent. You change one, some of the others will by necessity have to change. So the example I always like to use is the margins and the PE assumption. Basically, if your earnings are high, that probably means that your margins look high relative to history and probably means our model will say, well, the margins will have to come down. So you get a negative contribution. But that probably also means that your PE is low, your valuation is low because your earnings are very high at the moment. So you probably get a bonus at the end of the process. So these things offset. And in a way, our approach can actually distinguish whether our market is cheap or expensive because the price has moved a lot or because the earnings have moved a lot. And there are other relationships like this. And the nice thing is there are things that self-adjust and stabilize the outcome to some extent. You mentioned earnings as a relatively large block in the building blocks. It's a relatively large portion. Globally, we've seen a lot of variation in earnings cycles across markets. Can you talk about how this shorter-term volatility impacts our longer-term assumptions when it comes to forecasting equity market returns? It's a good question. Obviously, we're looking at a pretty long time horizon here. And to some degree, you're kind of smoothing out, assuming away a lot of these shorter-run fluctuations. And it's always easier to do that rather than you have to say, this adjustment to something more normal happens in year three or four on a 10-year horizon, I can sort of assume, well, it will happen somewhere within that. So an example I like to use is U.S. margins, which everyone agrees are very high. And in the long run, yes, they probably have to come down somewhat, even if they stay high relative to history. But people have been expecting that for years, and it just hasn't happened, because as long as growth is strong, margins don't tend to fall. Assuming a long-run downtrend is, I think, pretty safe and pretty reasonable, exactly pinpointing which year that that happens in is much, much harder. You mentioned this concept of starting points and moving toward the long-term average. Can you talk about why starting points are so important? 
Well, I think it's particularly important in valuations. Any of the academic research, if you care to read it, shows that in the long run, valuations are one of the most important drivers of equity returns. But actually, over a shorter one or two year time horizon, they don't really work. So there's inverse relationship. The longer out you go, the more important valuations become. So that's where your starting point comes in. Throughout this year's report, there was a lot of attention paid to payout ratios. Dividends and buybacks were noted throughout the report as something that was particularly important in determining the assumptions for this year. Can you discuss the outlook for distributions going forward over the next 10 to 15 years? Yeah, Hannah, in the work that we did, one of the interesting things that came out was the variability in total distribution around the world. So when we're looking at distribution, we're thinking both about equity buyback and about dividends. And there have been cultural reasons why buybacks have been strong in some reasons and not in others. But what's been interesting is the way in which the return of capital to shareholders has been a really, really important component of total return. That was particularly true, for instance, in the Eurozone and the UK when yields were high. But one of the things that we observed is that there has been a much higher cultural propensity within the United States equity market to do buybacks to the extent that, in fact, over the last three years, quoted US companies have returned 100% of their earnings to shareholders, which that's extraordinarily high in the long term. And actually, it fed into some quite interesting discussions with clients where we were thinking about why that might be the case. Because we'd written papers on productivity, there was some speculation about how companies were not finding profitable areas to invest in. That was why they were paying out so much to shareholders. But it also referred back to the era of very low interest rates and quantitative easing, where companies could finance themselves extremely cheaply in the credit markets and then buy back stock. So in the future, we think that it will not be like the past simply because interest rates are going to normalize. So there'll be less propensity to do buybacks. But nevertheless, it's still going to be an important component of total returns for the United States market. In the UK and the Eurozone, buybacks have been culturally lower than they have been in America. But we think that that will increase as well. And you're starting with a relatively high level of dividend yield in both areas. One of the things that we took into account in the Eurozone was the need of the Eurozone banking sector for extra capital. And in fact, we think that problem has been largely solved over the last two to three years with Italy, the last country to manage to inject capital into its banking system. There's less of a headwind from issuance. And therefore, we think that the net effect of that will be to improve the total return of capital to shareholders. And then in Japan, it's probably the most important of all areas where there is a cultural change because it was one of the arrows of Abenomics, the third arrow, was to bring about a cultural change in the way that Japan did business. And that applied not only to regulation and de-restricting the way in which they did business, but it also applied to the way in which companies were using capital on their balance sheet. Because for the last 20 years, there's been a lot of hoarding of capital. And the intention of the third arrow of Abenomics is to try and encourage companies either to put that capital to work in productive investment or simply to return it to shareholders. And that policy appears to have been extremely successful. So buybacks and return of capital to shareholders have increased in the last three years. And we think that that will continue to be an important feature of Japanese investment returns in the future. Distributed return to shareholders varies widely across markets, as do our earnings assumption based on the macroeconomic assumptions we also make as part of this long-term capital market assumptions exercise. Let's talk about our expectations region by region. First, the U.S. What is our outlook for equities over the next 10 to 15 years? Well, I think there's bad news for the U.S. Our return assumption has fallen again in the 2018 numbers. It's now down to 5.5% flat. That's down 75 basis points by a year earlier. 
and that's the lowest number we've ever had. Now, the vast bulk of that is actually down to valuations, which we discussed earlier. U.S. equities, at least when we struck these numbers towards the tail end of 2017, were now truly expensive to the tune of taking about 1.5% of our return assumption. Now, the good news is that actually, well, if it's valuation, that's a cyclical consideration in some sense, and the structural return actually on that number is closer than to 7 if you add that one and a half valuation headwind, I guess, back, if you add that back to the five and a half return. But clearly you have to get there. And today they are expensive. Also, as we hinted at earlier, well, we do expect US margins to decline in the long run. We still think they will stay much, much higher than they have been of the long run history. US companies in particular are very well run and very margin focused. So we do think they will stay high, but just not at these record levels where they are today. And as Stephen was saying, we do think U.S. companies will continue to return a lot of cash to shareholders. Again, they're absolutely leading in that, and we think that will also help returns to at least attain that level. I think one interesting point about U.S. valuations will be when we refresh these numbers in September of this year. When we did the numbers last year, it wasn't even clear that we were going to get a U.S. tax cut, and clearly that wasn't reflected in the earnings numbers. Now, on a trailing PE, the U.S. was trading at around 23 times, so I think it's hard to argue that that's not expensive. But depending on how the market will perform between now and when we cut the numbers, there is going to be a big jump in U.S. earnings this year, and, you know, I think... Uh, 20% earnings growth in the US in 2018 is not out of the question. So actually, we could see that valuation number come down quite uh, significantly, or rather the negative contribution from valuations to decline and bringing that return number back up. We'll have to see, but I'm actually quite hopeful on that front. The flip side of that, Patrick, of course, is that it's going to drive up margins. So we're going to have to have a, a long discussion in the group about where we expect US margins to settle and whether the margin impact is just a one-off or whether there's something more permanent there. Very good point. Very good point. And that's what I said earlier, that all these things are interconnected. So yeah, we'll have to see, but it'll be an interesting topic this year. Moving over to the euro area, why do your euro area equity return assumptions fall less than they do for other markets? One of the things that happened in the background, Patrick's talked about the building blocks that we put in place for these equity returns. One of those components is domestic GDP growth. And the Eurozone was one of the areas where we actually increased our expectation for medium-term GDP growth. And really, that was acknowledging that a lot of the problems that had become evident at the time of the sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone had been healed. And therefore, we felt that some of those headwinds that had pulled down returns and previously returned expectations were going to be absent. It's still the case that the Eurozone has demographic headwinds. But in a way, coming to Patrick's point about the way that we derive our expectation for revenue growth of the market... The Eurozone is an incredibly diversified market. A lot of revenues are generated overseas. The European companies sell to both America and to faster growing emerging markets, and so they get the benefit of that. So you take the whole thing together, there was less of a margin headwind. And of the margin headwind, a lot of that was because Europe has a high weighting in some of the more cyclical areas like financials, energy and resources. And from a valuation point of view, because equities in the Eurozone have struggled, there was less of a valuation headwind as well. By comparison with other areas, the Eurozone came out looking fairly attractive. Now, the United Kingdom presented some distinct challenges this year. 
in the wake of Brexit, uncertainty is higher, and I'm sure that made forecasting our equity return assumptions more difficult than usual. Can you discuss how we dealt with some of the challenges that came from greater uncertainty? Yes, absolutely. I think that one of the things that we don't do within the long-term capital market assumptions is to make calls on geopolitics. One of the themes that runs through the whole thing is we expect fairly benign outcomes. We expect a fairly benign outcome to any kind of saber rattling on trade and tariffs. We expect that the Eurozone will stay together. We're also expecting a fairly benign outcome from negotiations between the UK and the European Union because it's in the interest of both sides to come to a mutually beneficial agreement. And therefore, in a way, we were able to go back to the factors driving underlying GDP growth for the UK market. And in the short term, the UK economy has struggled slightly. That's largely been an effect of the weakness of sterling, which drove up inflation and put pressure on real incomes and consumption. From a cyclical starting point, we felt that the UK cycle could normalize in a positive direction rather than a negative direction from here. And also from a valuation point of view, we expected that valuation headwinds were reflected largely a collapse in earnings in some of the really resource intensive areas within the UK market and also within the financials area. Taken all in all, we felt that the picture was not as negative as some have painted. I know that recently surveys have come out saying that the UK is the biggest consensus underweight. But I think that if you expect a fairly benign outcome to negotiations with the European Union, actually, there is a story there and certainly a diversification story. Moving over to Japan, you've noted the influence of higher assumed sustainable margins and valuations and some structural changes in Japan that significantly impacted our forecasts. Can you unpack these assumptions for us? Yeah, sure. One of the issues that Japan faces is that there's a relatively weak level of domestically generated growth. That's the issue that Abenomics is designed to address. There's also a weak level of underlying inflation. So when you take the two together, that gives you nominal domestic growth. Again, Abenomics is seeking to address that. We do see something of a recovery in the underlying level of Japanese inflation. And so the nominal picture improves slightly. But there is still a headwind for the overall market by comparison with other areas, and particularly with emerging markets. Against that, you have the fact that we think that the margin headwind, it's there, but it's not necessarily huge. And in fact, when we were having these discussions about the return assumptions, analysts out in Japan are more confident about the outlook for margins over the next three to four years. The defense for us is we're looking over a 10 to 15 year time horizon and expecting a reversion to mean. But you then get into a really interesting discussion with clients about whether the past is going to imperfectly represent the future if Abenox is going to work and drive up profitability for Japanese companies. So, you know, there is scope within these numbers as we go through the next two or three years and gauge the success of Abenox for the numbers to rise and the rise will probably come from margins. I've already talked quite a lot about the cultural change that stems from buybacks. If you go right back into the roots of the problem, it's particularly acute among mid and small caps in Japan. And there are some numbers that you can get from the local market that show one of the interesting side effects of the Japanese crisis was that credit looked like it was rationed and therefore companies kept a very high level of capital on their balance sheets, particularly in the small and mid cap sector. And that problem is now being addressed. So buybacks and return of capital to shareholders is definitely, to our minds, going to be one of the most important components of Japanese total return in the next 10 to 15 years. One of the biggest downgrades we saw between last year's publication and this year's publication was the drop in the forecasts for emerging Asia. Can we talk about what changed? When we look at emerging markets in the process, generally what we do 
is to build it up from the underlying emerging economies. So we look at what are the biggest equity markets in EM. We cover something like 85% in more than 10 countries, but we then weight it back up to the regions. So the three big regions are Asia, LATAM, and emerging Europe and Africa. And we weight that back up by market cap. Now, Asia is much the biggest one. And within Asia, clearly China is dominant, followed by Korea and Taiwan. So those three are really going to drive any of the changes in the forecast. Now, as it happened this year, all three of those big ones, so China, Korea and Taiwan, were lower or came out lower relative to the year before. China had the biggest downgrade that fell about two percentage points. So that's one of the bigger downgrades you tend to see. I mean, it had really two components. It was both the fact that our assumption for um, GDP growth fell versus last year. And I should say, for those who haven't followed the macro part of the capital market assumptions, really the outlook for China is one where population growth is slowing there, as it is in many developed economies. And as that continues over the next 10 to 15 years, we would expect Chinese GDP growth assumptions to continue slowly coming lower. In essence, we are dropping one strong growth uh, year today and then adding on another weak or weaker GDP growth year at the end of the process in 15 years. That doesn't mean that we expect a sudden collapse or catastrophe. It's just a gradual slowdown. And this was one of the years when actually China fell over one of the sort of steps, if you think a staircase down and had a downgrade. That was one part of the equity return downgrade. And then secondly, it was valuations. And that was actually the bigger part of the downgrade. Chinese equities rallied a lot and much more than earnings recovered. Really add those two together, there was a big drop in the Chinese assumption. Now, for the other two countries, for Korea, actually, it wasn't a big downgrade. It fell from 8 to 775. That's really pretty marginal. Again, it was higher valuations and a bit lower GDP growth. But then actually, we think margins are going to be a bit better. And actually, buybacks looked a bit better. So that offset much of the drop. So it's only a small drop overall. Taiwan saw a 75 basis point drop to 825 from 9. Again, lower GDP growth assumption. So there's a bit of a theme here. And the margins looked a bit worse. And actually, the market had got a little bit cheaper. So, you know, there's always a lot of moving parts that offset each other. But generally, that came down 75 lower, which led to the overall Asian downgrade. But overall, these are still pretty healthy return numbers, much higher than what you would expect in developed markets, which is really what goes for emerging markets as a whole. Looking at the EM universe as a whole, we saw downgrades for emerging Asia as well as emerging Europe and Middle East. However, Latin America was relatively unchanged from last year. Can we talk about why Latin America did not see a downgrade while other emerging regions did? So again, I think it's worth reminding ourselves what countries we're talking about when we're talking about LATAM. In market cap terms, it's really Brazil and Mexico that matter. It was almost a perfect offset from Brazil falling and Mexico rising. What happened in Brazil, really, with the developments locally, the political developments, the economy essentially bottoming, Brazilian equities, again, had a long rally expecting an improvement in earnings in the general environment. 
However, that hadn't come through yet. So as a result, actually, the valuations looked a lot higher. So that led to a 75 drop in Brazil. In Mexico, we almost had the exact opposite. Earnings recovered very, very strongly and actually in excess of market performance or the market actually got cheaper. So we almost have perfect opposites between Brazil and Mexico here, leaving you flat overall. There remains a decently sized gap between emerging market and developed market performance. I was wondering if you could each tell us what you think that means for investors. Yeah, should I just take that first time? I mean, I think without wanting to steal Patrick Sander, one of the interesting things about the equity assumptions is that, of course, they don't stand in isolation. They stand alongside predictions for other asset classes that we're making. And I think one of the paradoxes for asset allocators, as a result partly of quantitative easing, which has driven interest rates to extraordinarily low levels, is that balancing out return versus risk, it's a tough environment at the moment. And one of the things that stands out when we do our 60-40 stock bond distributions and just look at that is basically if you need return, you're having to go further out along the risk scale, so more into equity and within equity, more into emerging markets. But having said that, I also think that when you unpick the assumptions that we're making, actually the return assumptions for equities and for emerging markets are very, very soundly based. There is an expectation that although we're in the mature part of the cycle, nevertheless, the underlying bones of economic growth over the next 10 to 15 years still look pretty promising in emerging markets. And we still think that you do get the benefits of better corporate governance in the shape of better distribution of capital to shareholders, which is going to underpin your returns. Patrick, what do you think? I think you hit the nail on the head there with the focus on risk as well. With higher returns in EM comes higher volatility. Again, if you look at this in sharp ratio terms, actually, they don't look all that different from developed markets. So you have to bear in mind what it is that you buy. It's a high return, but also a higher risk asset class. The other thing, I guess I would say, if you put this in historical context, so call it roughly 2% outperformance that we're expecting for EM. If you go back to the dawn of history, which in emerging market indices is 1989, you find that they have outperformed about 3% per annum since then. Now we're expecting two, so that doesn't seem excessive in a long run history, but they're not cheap either now, so that makes sense. And they're not growing as fast as they used to. The big components, as we've already hinted at a few times, are also developing and therefore naturally slowing down. So I think it all actually makes sense if you add it up. This year saw the introduction of assumptions for global convertible bonds and global credit-sensitive convertible bonds. What's the outlook for these assets? Convertible bonds are an interesting asset class, which combine, as the name suggests, aspects of both debt and equity. Generally, interestingly, have offered returns that are quite close to equity, but for a much lower volatility. Small asset class too but a very interesting asset class. And really, we've seen a lot of demand from clients for introducing these this year. That's kind of what we're expecting. We think the global convertible bond index will do about 5% in the long run. And then we also look at other subclasses. We think credit sensitive will do 425. What you have to remember is that these are, in essence, derived in a consistent and structured framework from the equity numbers. We look at the plain equity numbers, look at the weightings in the convertible indices, how they differ from the equity indices, reweight things, and then also look at the betas and deltas to the equity universe and really build it back up that way. So all of this should be consistent. The consequence of that is also that when we apply the new methodology this year, 
to what we had last year in equity numbers, they've dropped by similar amounts. They've dropped by and large around 50 basis points. The thing to remember here is that they are a derived asset class from equities, but generally something that we consider interesting because allows a different risk and return trade-off. Thank you both for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. It's been my pleasure. It's been great. Thanks very much indeed for asking us, Hannah. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online continuing education tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded May 2nd, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan. 
the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, financial instruments firm number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.